You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of natural climate solutions and help demystify this growing field. We're your hosts. I'm Julia. I'm Ida. And I'm Kate. Today, we're thrilled to welcome Megan Riley Caton to the pod. Megan has developed, financed, and managed projects to deliver positive impacts for people and the planet on four continents, and is currently Senior Investment Manager with Climate Asset Management, a new institutional natural capital platform. She has a background in power and infrastructure development, finance and asset management, and has advised funds, companies, and projects on climate and carbon offset strategy and impact. She has also founded, grew, and sold an impact-focused business with operations in Mexico and India. And if that weren't enough, she is a senior advisor to the Oceans 2050 Foundation, board member of the largest conservation NGO in Mexico and on the Environmental Voter Project, and is on the National Council of World Wildlife Fund. Her passion is climate restoration with the goal of leaving our children a habitable planet. We're thrilled to have you today. Welcome to the pod, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. So happy to be here. So Megan, you've done truly just an enviable number of things in in this space. We would love to hear a little bit about sort of where your interest in natural climate solutions comes from and you know how you got to where where you are today. My interest in natural capital solutions comes from uh, a very strongly held belief that I think was our, came out in my bio that the goal of restoring balance to the climate is to leave our children and future generations a planet that they can live on, obviously, hopefully thrive on. Uh, reducing atmospheric PPM concentrations and uh, concentrations in the oceans, because the oceans are constantly in flux with the atmosphere, is essential to that. Technology like direct air capture is hugely important. But if we find ourselves in 2050 having achieved those goals of reducing our atmospheric PPM concentrations to the goals, for example, of the Paris Agreement, and there's no more Amazon rainforest, there are no mangroves in the Yucatan, no Great Barrier Reef in Australia, we will not have achieved our goal of having a livable planet. I worked with a a mangrove scientist once who told me he advised Bill and Melinda Gates on setting up their foundation. And after many conversations, the the conclusion was that nature is too complicated, too too effing complicated. Um, And, and, you know, that's that's not wrong. Um, It makes sense that we're focused on engineering our way out of the problem because we do what we're good at, which often as as humans is, is build gray boxes that solve problems. But we need to appreciate and value the services that nature provides to us, starting with carbon removal, but including the myriad others, for example, providing us oxygen, or we won't achieve our climate or any other long-term goals. And that is why I think NCS is such a, a vital part of the solution. As to how I came here, um, I spent most of my career deploying engineered solutions. So building those big gray boxes, mostly in emerging markets, Um, Like many of us active in climate, I worked in energy because that is where I could put climate at the core of a private sector commercial enterprise. And that aligns with how I feel I can deliver the most impact. If you can demonstrate that you can make money doing something, that tends to be a pretty good way of attracting capital to scale it up. Um, 
you know, what we call natural climate solutions today until the last few years largely weren't seen as commercial. They tended to be funded by philanthropic or government sources. I think that has something to do with the fact that we treat most ecosystem services provided by nature as if they were free. Um, And I'm thrilled today to be part of the first institutional natural capital asset management platform, as you mentioned in the intro, and to be out in the market talking about what natural capital is, because even though the term was coined in the 70s in the financial world, it's still a very new concept. There are legitimate concerns about whether scale is the solution or the problem. So maybe we'll get into that today. Um, And honestly, whether it's even appropriate to put a price tag on nature as Sir Dasgupta, who, who wrote a seminal piece for the Bank of England on the value of nature to the economy, says it's definitely vulgar. Um, but for better or for worse as a species, we seem to equate value with price. And I think creating markets for ecosystem services is, is part of the solution. That was an awesome intro, Megan. And I can't wait to dig into all of those different facets that you brought up. And as you mentioned, you have had quite a varied career to date, um, from infrastructure, private equity, to founder and CEO of an impact-focused business, to chief commercial officer at an oceans-focused organization. Curious to understand what have been the biggest lessons learned from this varied career, and how are you applying that to the nature-based solutions work you're doing today? It's a great question, and I suppose I'm enough decades into my career, hopefully I can take some some takeaways um, to share. I think a big piece of it is that I'm an optimist without illusions. I had a conversation a few months ago with a leading investor in regenerative agriculture and forestry who is indigenous Maori. And he, he's done some really transformational work in Aotearoa or, or New Zealand as well as Hawaii. And he told me he always leaves our conversations feeling hopeful. And to me, that was the highest compliment. That's the energy I I try to bring to the world. I think you also need not to have illusions and to understand how to get things done. So in my world, we call that execution. Um, I keep quoting people who who use words I I, I can't repeat on a a polite podcast, but but Gina McCarthy, the, the domestic climate czar and former EPA administrator in the US, refers to herself as someone who who gets things done. I'll let you I'll let you imagine um, the word that she uses instead of things. And honestly, I think that's the reason for for any success I've had in my career. I just don't give up. Sometimes in retrospect, it would have been better if not to give up, maybe to prioritize or, or change strategy. So I don't think it's always a good thing. But I get enormous satisfaction from from finishing the job, from seeing the project developed. And I find that that can bring a lot of value particularly when you're working with, for example, a visionary like Alexander Cousteau, who may not have time or space for the weeds, to be the person who really gets into the weeds and navigates the challenges and gets things done. And, and Megan, one of the reasons I was so excited personally to have you on the podcast is that emerging markets have been such a strong theme throughout your career. Um, and so I, I wonder if you could could chat about, you know, what excites you about the opportunity for nature-based solutions in emerging markets specifically? What challenges, unique challenges might there be that differ from from a non-emerging markets context? Well, I was excited that you were excited to have me on to talk about emerging markets. I've spent most of my adult life working in in emerging markets or, you know, the global south. I'm actually only on my my second job ever that involves working in any global north economy, much less the U.S., where I'm currently based. I'm based in New York. Um, and I know, Kate, you know very well the challenges of some of these markets. You've worked in ones far cha- more challenging than I have. 
you know, I, I personally, I love the energy. I love the people. I love the life in emerging markets and the challenge of working in a new language or culture. I also find that what people want makes sense to me. General people want a better life for their kids and they want agency over their lives. And both of those things apply very directly to nature-based solutions. People understand their dependence on nature and are exposed to the, the changes in the climate, which have real direct personal impacts on their ability to make a living and maybe and eat and you know maybe stay alive um, and want to make decisions about the land that they call home um, and not have other people make it for them. Um, so I think the Global South offers huge opportunities for nature-based solutions because that's where the nature is. So if you look at the countries with the most biodiversity, you see Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, Indonesia, South Africa on top of the list. Um, you know, Australia, New Zealand and, and, and the U.S. certainly make it as well. We also know that indigenous people are the stewards of 80 percent of the world's remaining healthy ecosystems and global biodiversity priority areas. And that did not happen by accident. There is a different approach towards stewarding biodiversity in indigenous communities than there is from uh, in, in other areas. And I think a central challenge of managing the capital flows from the global north into the global south for nature-based solutions is for local communities to be at the center of everything, deciding what matters, deciding how they want to affect change, what is it they want to change, having agencies over their lives and the places that that they and likely their, their ancestors have stewarded for thousands of years um, and have kept intact well outside the, the global economy has continued to deplete and, and exploit natural resources. And I think that's because long-term projects, whether they're power plants like I used to build or a you know an afforestation carbon project, they only work if all the stakeholders are aligned over the long-term. Uh, you can't pick up those projects and move them. If, if things don't work out, you need to invest from the beginning and making sure all stakeholders are aligned and that everybody benefits, particularly the people who are delivering the value. Um, but I think also fundamentally, because, you know, if you think about the indigenous communities, they're the reason the nature is there in the first place. And we have everything to learn from them <laughs> rather than vice versa. I mentioned with you guys before, I think there's a real, a real risk that carbon markets become yet another instrument of one might call it colonial intervention, where the folks with the capital who are trying to save the planet, which is admirable, and I'm entirely aligned with, with that goal, impose solutions that they think work best on other people and on, on the places that those people call home without having the structures in place to properly co-develop and, and co-implement those solutions. So I personally have a lot of optimism that markets for carbon and other ecosystem services can, can do the opposite if they're designed well. So to put nature and the people that steward it at the center, um, I think there's a lot of work to be done. In terms of the, the challenges of emerging markets investments, when, when compared with more established markets, um, probably familiar to a lot of your listeners, I mean, higher regulatory and political risk, currency risk, all of which complicates capital allocation decisions and the execution of a, of a long-term project, whether NBS or otherwise. So the way I think about it, you know, when a large investor like a pension fund that has an obligation to return capital to their shareholders, and those shareholders are the people who benefit from that pension fund, those are likely teachers or government employees who depend on those pensions for their livelihood. And the risk tolerance of that pension fund is therefore going to be pretty low. When they consider opportunities to invest for the long-term, it can be really hard to predict and quantify and accept the risk of, of political instability, of conflict, 
of lack of land tenure. Do you even know what you're buying? Can you defend it in a court? Um, the risk that the value of the currency might be cut in half. I mean, all of those create, I think, really significant risks that it's quite difficult for the market to price. Nature-based solutions add another layer in that nature is, is interconnected, so it can be really hard to draw a project boundary and limit your risk exposure to what happens within that boundary. Um, nature-based assets can be harder to insure than gray infrastructure. Uh, there's some really interesting work um, that has been done by a group called Earth Security around the benefit that mangroves added to reducing exposure to coastal risk for a particular power plant project in Pakistan. And there's a lot of really, really interesting work being done by, by reinsurers and folks in the insurance industry to try to think through how to provide incentives for these nature-based solutions to be deployed to, to protect those assets and ultimately to reduce premiums and reduce risk. Um, but it's really still a, a much harder uh, thing to quantify than, than, again, one of those big gray boxes that we've been working on for a long time and, you know, that you can harden with a lot of concrete. I think I know this is a long answer, but just a, just a couple other areas that I think are relevant. It's pretty rare to sign long-term offtake contracts for a lot of crops that might be developed by nature-based solutions type intervention, um, in some cases for, for carbon as well. So you can you see a lot of the transactions happening at a spot price or via a trader. And that makes it hard to have the certainty in the price required to invest in a project up front. Um, I'm always amazed. I'm you know, somewhat new to this space. And when I learn about supply chains and think that, you know, these big global companies are asking some of the poorest people on earth to invest significant amounts of money to change their practices, whether it's for doing enhance soil carbon sequestration or enhance their climate resilience or reduce water risk, whatever it may be, I'm, you know, very admirable goal. Um, but there's, there's no guarantee of a contract at the back end. And there's certainly, you know, very rarely a premium for that work either. I think that um, that's just a really challenging structural challenge um, that we deal with in this space. And then finally, I would say these projects often require a lot of capacity building and technical assistance. So that's one of the challenges I have with, with buyers alliances that offer something along, along the lines of, you know, if you build it, we will buy it. Um, Nature-based solutions are a rapidly evolving space. There are a lot of requirements and whether it's paperwork or, or science-based and communities that are stewards of some of the ecosystems that are most important need support to access these markets because they're just not always easy to navigate. So I think that's that's another piece of the, the equation that, that we have to include. Megan, thanks for that overview of the different challenges. And so glad you mentioned the important role of indigenous communities in particular and putting communities at the center of these solutions. Uh, that's a theme that has come up in other episodes with other guests and something we want to continue to talk about and uh, reiterate on the podcast. I'm curious for your thoughts on what safeguards are needed to ensure equity and to ensure that these communities are placed at the center of these solutions. And then how do we balance urgency and doing things right, but take time like capacity building you mentioned? Really good questions. I think one of the really, again, the sort of the challenging and often also really inspiring aspects of nature-based solutions and natural capital broadly is that each investment in each piece of land or each piece of nature is different. You know, you call them contextual or unique so I think you do need to develop solutions that fit the local context and look at a particular landscape and do a pretty uh, deep diligence into who are the stakeholders, how do they use the land today, 
How do they value the land today? What does the land mean? So when I say value, you know, it could be financial value because I grow a crop there and I sell it and therefore I'm able to, you know, feed my kids. But there are other systems of value that have nothing to do with money, um, which is sometimes hard for us investors to appreciate that are probably equally or more important in different cultural mindsets. So I think you've got to come from a position of real humility and do the work, spend the time on the ground, listen, find intermediaries who are able to help you navigate, particularly if you're an outsider, um, a local community. How do they make decisions? Who who makes decisions? What do they care about? Um, and also from a place of respect, you know, it may be that that the, this amazing project that you design that you think is such a great solution falls flat locally, and you need to be able to accept that and not try to navigate around it. Um, so obviously, there are some structured approaches to um, to doing that, you know, social due diligence work and the stakeholder engagement work. But I think at the end of the day, it comes down to spending the time to ensure that you're having those conversations that really matter and that you're listening and that that design is being incorporated. I think another piece of it is transitioning from a place where social benefits or community benefits of investments are primarily expressed in terms of jobs to a place where those investments are seen as partnerships. And so transitioning again from sort of labor to partner, I think that is a, that's a transition that um, pretty much everybody everywhere understands. So there needs to be a structure in which communities benefit immediately from day one from whatever work is happening in that area and that they contribute to it. Um, I'm not suggesting that it's, um, you know, that it's a payment or just for license to operate, but rather that typically those are the communities who are actually doing the work on the ground. So if you look at some project design where uh, those communities may not actually see any benefit from that for a number of years, and if they do, it may be 15% of the total revenues from the project, I think that's just fundamentally misaligned. So really think through how do you ensure that the community that you're working with is the primary beneficiary of the work that that happens and that they're able to share in the upside too, right? You're giving them some guarantee and you're making sure that they get the financing that they need for the project to happen, but that it's structured so that they also get access to upside. Because again, these are long-term projects. And if you aren't aligned for the long-term, a lot of things can happen. And I think you'll find that, that some of those opportunities disappear um, if you haven't structured the project properly. Yeah, well, I think we uh, we definitely agree with that with that sentiment and that perspective. Um, we definitely love to delve a little bit more into your experiences on the project financing side of natural assets. But before that, we wanted to dig a little bit more into your experience with oceans. As you know, we're big fans of blue carbon over here. Our last guest was Marty Odlin from Running Tide, and I think all of us have a sort of penchant for mangroves. Um, and we'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience with oceans and what you've been doing on the marine and coastal side and and what have you. Sure. I am new to uh, blue carbon, I guess, like most people. I think the, the term was only coined in 2009. So no one has no one's been working on it for too long, um, but equally passionate. And I uh, got involved with Oceans 2050 Foundation a couple years ago uh, through a, a long term relationship with Alexandra Cousteau, who is an ocean advocate, who's one of the co-founders of Oceans 2050 along with Professor Carlos Duarte, who was one of the people who, who coined the term blue carbon and is a world expert on, on that and many other things having to do with the oceans. And I learned from them how important it is for global climate goals to reduce CO2 loads in the oceans. 
And I was blown away by this. Um, it was something I didn't know. And so I, it was an area where I really thought I could make an impact by, by scaling up solutions and also spreading the word. So if you don't mind, I'll take this opportunity to share what I learned, which is that the oceans have absorbed at least a third of all the, the CO2 that humans have emitted since the Industrial Revolution and about 90% of the heat. So we are currently putting the heat equivalent of seven Hiroshima bombs into the ocean every second, which is kind of just impossible to imagine. It's a great cost to ocean health. So the oceans are acidifying, they're deoxygenating organisms that, that need to create shells called calcifiers are having trouble doing that. But more relevant to the climate conversation is that all of the CO2 that's above the thermocline, which is at about a thousand meters, is constantly in flux with the atmosphere. So if we don't do something about those CO2 loads in the ocean, whenever we're successful at reducing atmospheric concentrations, all that excess CO2, which is a third of all anthropogenic emissions, will just come right out again. So we're setting ourselves up for failure. And I, when I learned about this, um, found it kind of amazing that we, we ha only have today one proven scalable solution for reducing CO2 loads in the ocean, and that's seaweed farming. Um, and that it has such a small footprint of just 2,000 square kilometers. So, you know, in the context of about the three and a half million square kilometers that, that Professor Duarte believes is, are, are suitable for seaweed farming, um, while relying only on, on anthropogenic nutrient inputs. So I got really excited about the potential of seaweed. I'm sure Marty and your listeners to that podcast did as well, because it's pretty contagious. Um, and I started a project at Oceans 2050 specific to creating uh, opportunities for a voluntary carbon market around seaweed farming. And and just diving a bit more into the, the carbon market side of things, I mean, obviously one, one way to fund seaweed farming at scale is through offsets. What's the status of this as, a, as an offset? How is it generated? What's that potential? Um, and where are we in developing it? So the basic mechanism for how seaweed removes carbon is that you know, no matter how it grows, whether it's wild or it's cultivated, it absorbs CO2 from the ocean via, via photosynthesis. And during the growing period, a portion of that biomass breaks off and a portion of the carbon in that biomass is permanently sequestered in, in ocean sediments. So depending on the ocean currents, the sediments can end up up to 5,000 kilometers away. But in sheltered areas, they're typically below the farm. And that is the focus of the, the research and the methodology development in the project that I led at Oceans 2050. In terms of where the project is, it has three different components. One, the first is the science and Oceans 2050 has the great benefit of relying on Professor Duarte's science. So we put together a, a project that involves 21 farms on five continents, quantifying the carbon in the sediments underneath the farms and using radiocarbon dating to estimate when that carbon was deposited. So you can think about it kind of like, like tree rings. We have one farm that is over 300 years old and it's been continuously operated for that long. We've got another one that, that is quite young. We've got a farm that can be seen from space and we've got another one that we sort of affectionately refer to as a garden. <laughs> so we've got ones all over the place in different with different species, different growing conditions, different circumstances. And the idea is to then uh, establish the carbon removal rates and understand what are the real drivers of carbon removal from seaweed farming so that we can optimize it over time and so that we can develop a methodology based on that science. So where we are right now is that the science has been a bit delayed due to COVID. We expect we should be publishing the peer-reviewed study 
by the middle of this year. And the science itself um, has already informed a a draft concept paper for a methodology that we're developing and have submitted to VERA, the Carbon Accrediting Methodology Agency that probably your listeners know well for review. And obviously the next step will be once the science is published to develop a full-fledged methodology and then to go out and develop the first project to use that methodology, again, bringing to bear our views on, on governance and benefit sharing and what makes a high integrity credit. Um, and really, you know, to maximize the price we've seen over the, the two years that this project has been in development. My price expectations for what we may be able to achieve have increased significantly along with the carbon market. So um, I'd like to see this become a real source of funding for, for seaweed farmers who are already out there doing this work and also to motivate folks to optimize and design seaweed farms for carbon removal, which is not something that's happened to date. That's some really uh, impressive cutting edge work that you're very cool, Megan, and driving forward on the seaweed front and to switch to other cutting edge work. We thought we'd dig into CAM, uh, so climate asset management, and understand what you're doing there and also what makes CAM different or makes it stand out relative to other funds that have been popping up that are pursuing natural climate solutions or natural capital investments? Well, that's a a great question. Um, And CAM or climate asset management, um, what really differentiates us is that we're the first large scale institutional natural capital platform. So along with that uh, scale and our shareholders and sponsors who are HSBC asset management, and Pollination, which is a a specialist climate investment and advisory firm. We have a mandate to contribute to natural capital becoming an asset class for institutional investors. So for those pension funds or those insurance companies who can write, for example, or need to write a $50 million check um, to see natural capital as an asset class in the real assets bucket, you know, alongside infrastructure, um, for example, as a place where they can meet their financial returns objectives and therefore honor their commitments to the folks who hold their pensions with them and also achieve the impact that is important for them over the long term and the climate resilience. So that's really how we're different from some of the other solutions on the market. And we have two strategies. One is more global and focused on carbon offsets. The other is more, as I just described, uh, our, the natural capital strategy focused on providing financial returns and impact for institutional investors in a limited set of markets without the emerging market risk that I described previously. That's because this is a new asset class and this is part of a journey. Certainly, hopefully won't be the case forever. Um, Impact for for climate asset management is improved ecosystem condition and services, uh, as well as community value creation. I am responsible for that and can talk about it ad nauseum, but will not. Um, But it's really core to our thesis and what it is that we're trying to achieve. And we think in general, it's very aligned with our financial returns objectives because our time horizon is so long. So each of these strategies have at least a 15-year life with the option to go up to 25. And because our thesis is around land use and land management change, that takes a lot of time. Um, needs to be done together with those local stakeholders, as we discussed before. Um, it takes time for, for nature to regenerate. Nature doesn't necessarily follow a, a quarterly reporting schedule. I always find sometimes when I speak to folks in Silicon Valley, you know, there's not this sort of exponential scale up trajectory. Trees grow how fast trees grow and you can optimize it in a certain way, but there's only so much you can do. So I think it's really important that 
that our approach is focused on doing the hard work over the long term. We're not expecting, you know, any silver bullet type solutions. Um, and the other piece of it that I think is pretty unique from what I've seen is because, particularly on the natural capital side, carbon, of course, is a, is an improving climate resilience and providing climate adaptation solutions as well as mitigation solutions is core to our thesis. Um, but it's not the only thing we're trying to do. We're trying to optimize land for multiple ecosystem services. And that means that we don't have to squeeze everything through the carbon lens um, the way you do if your only source of revenue is a carbon offset. And we don't need to treat everything other than carbon as a, as a co-benefit the way sometimes happens in carbon projects because we're looking for opportunities to generate financial return through sale of crops or sale of timber, as well as sale of ecosystem services. We can optimize across all those buckets and that gives us the flexibility to really choose what makes the best sense for, for the landscape and for the communities that are in that landscape and to quantify everything else and try to invest in developing the technology to, to help quantify and monitor it to support the development of markets for that over the long term. Um, but like I said, we don't have to we don't have to maximize for carbon removal at all times, which is typically, you know, maybe not what's what's best for the landscape anyway. Um, and that, I think, means that we offer a, a really holistic solution compared to some of the other opportunities on the market. Yeah, that is such an important point and an important nuance that although optimizing for carbon is incredibly important, it is not the end-all be-all. And um, there are just so many other dimensions that we have to consider as well. One turn of phrase that you used earlier is that nature is the new climate. Could you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? I, I was thinking about this week that this weekend. This is the I've mentioned that before, and this is probably the most um, I'll say on the subject. So I'd say it's still evolving. But you know, when I got involved with climate asset management after two decades working in climate, I spent time understanding the biodiversity crisis because it's central, really, to our value proposition. And honestly, after a few weeks, I decided I would rather go back to climate because it's more hopeful, um, which is maybe a depressing thing to say. But, you know, the, biodiver the biodiversity crisis is many scientists think worse than the climate crisis in terms of its potential consequences for humanity. I don't think I quite grasped that before I spent the time del delving into the research. And globally, uh, if you look at the, the Living Planet Report from World Wildlife Fund, for example, the populations of, of basically all the creatures on this planet that we, that we share it with, so mammals, fish, birds, reptiles, amphibians, declined 68% from 1970 to 2016. It's a little older than I am, but not so much. It basically means that in my lifetime, we've lost 68% of the other living things that we share the planet with. I find that extraordinary. I think the number for the ocean is at least 50% in my lifetime. Um, and I think that's just a tremendous challenge that we have to meet with uh, real solutions. You know, Alexandra Cousteau will say, you can't deal with exponential loss with incremental solutions. We need to find ways to elevate our ambition beyond sustainability and conservation and trying to keep a little bit more of what we have left to really thinking about restoring abundance and, and restoration and regeneration. Um, so that's part of what I mean by nature is, is the new climate, but I also mean it in an institutional context because uh, one of the benefits of working for a platform that is focused on investors in the EU 
um, and that is UK-based, is that I get to see some of the regulatory changes that are coming there that I think are are not um, quite at the fore, for example, in, in the US where I'm based. And so there's just a host of, of regulatory changes that are coming that apply in an institutional context that I think it, investors should be getting ready for. So one of the most obvious ones is TNFD, the Task Force on Nature-Based Financial Disclosures, which should issue, a, I think, its first report in a couple months. It's modeled after TCFD, the, the version that's focused on climate. It similarly is very risk-based in terms of uh, requiring disclosure of impacts and dependencies on nature. But I think it's a, you know, it's a pretty small step from disclosure to requirements to, to mitigate those impacts. Um, you also see Article 29 in the, under, in the French law on energy and the environment that requires holders of institutional capital to disclose those impacts and dependencies on nature. Um, and so we actually see a lot of interest from folks who are looking at some of those changes along with a variety of others like the EU taxonomy and the sustainable finance disclosure regulation at the risk of throwing a bunch of alphabet soup at you um, that are really requiring investors to think through what those risks are, how they mitigate them. And so I think it's it's becoming mission critical for the business, but it's also something that's going to be regulated. And I think at a broader level, I was really taken by the report that I mentioned earlier that Sardas Gupta did on, on the dependencies of, of the economy on nature. It was really meant to underpin a lot of this work to try to figure out how to quantify and create structures for markets dealing with some of these challenges. And the conclusion of that report was that 50% of global economic activity has high dependency or moderate dependency on nature. And I remember thinking at the time, what about oxygen? Like, why is it not 100%, right? We're part of these natural systems. And I think investors and others are starting to realize that these are, it's a finite set of resources. We're really at a tipping point. And it's existential for our own survival that we sort that we deal with the challenges posed by biodiversity loss at the same time um, that we deal with, with the challenges of climate change. And, you know, the good news about, about natural capital, uh, natural climate solutions, which is one of the reasons I'm so excited to be on this podcast, is that you can address both at once. Yeah, I, I remember having a similar reaction reading, reading the Descupta report last year. Um, pretty, pretty wild. Um, I mean, digging into the, the, the how a little bit, you know, one of the things I often hear as a challenge is making nature-based solutions investable. So I wonder if you could, you know, put your, your investor hat on for a bit and, and just in concrete terms, what does that mean? What does a bankable project look like? And where are the gaps that you're typically seeing? I think question number one is how do I get paid, right? And I just had this conversation with someone about a pilot project that I, I was really interesting. Um, there needs to be a clear revenue source. And that revenue source, in order to accept, you know, if, if that revenue is going to be the, the um, something that allows really scalable capital to be invested, it's got to be in some kind of an established market. So that could be a relatively new market as long as it's regulated. And I'll give you an example. You know, biodiversity net gain was passed into law in the UK just in December. That's a regulated market, somewhat like mitigation banking in the US, although a little different, that says that if you cause uh, a certain degree of biodiversity loss, you need to restore it uh, 110% of it. And there's a incredibly detailed technical guide for how to do that. There's similar, um, though different, biodiversity offset regulated markets in, in some states in Australia, for example. 
Um, so a regulated market can provide that degree of certainty to an investor, probably won't provide that much price certainty if it's a brand new market but or, or volume, but um, certainly that regulatory obligation gives an investor confidence that there's going to be essentially demand for whatever, whatever supply you're producing, whatever biodiversity credits or whatever kind of credits you're producing. I think another real basic requirement of making a project investable is, is certainly that the risk return um, is, is appropriately adjusted so that you're taking a risk that you get compensated for, right? So if it's a riskier environment, you're expecting a higher return. Again, that, that can create um, expectations for nature-based solutions in the global south that uh, may or may not be appropriate. But one example would be if you're looking at a nature-based solution that's based on land acquisition, for example, and you are working in a jurisdiction where there is not necessarily land tenure um, or a system in which the the ownership of that land is clear. It could be community ownership. It could be an ejido in, in, in Mexico. I'm not suggesting it needs to be individual ownership, but it, there needs to be kind of just like we can't have double counting in carbon credits. It's, you know, you can't have two folks, two people or two organizations with the same claim to the land so that you go off and acquire it and then find out you didn't have the right to buy it in the first place. Or, or maybe you go and invest and acquire the land and then there's no court protection when someone takes it back from you. So there needs to be some, I think, assurances that you can then have some kind of, you know, whatever you're investing in is going to retain its value and you're going to retain the rights to it over a long period of time. Those are two challenges. Um, and I think there are others that can be mitigated through financial structuring and other solutions. But I think that the core of all of it is the fact, going back to, to how we started this conversation, the fact that, you know, we take a lot of these ecosystem services, which, you know, in and of itself defines nature as something that serves us, right? Um, but, but it does. And we take them all for granted. We consider that they're free. And so it's just incredibly hard to build an investable project where the core value proposition is to generate something that no one wants to pay for. I think the fundamental challenge is we've got to create markets and an expectation that whether it's voluntary or regulated markets, that these are things people have to pay for and they're finite resources that need to be valued. Amen, Megan. I'm totally on board with that. <laughs> and uh, I'm hopeful that we're headed in, in that direction more and more. You know, you talk about improved ecosystem condition and, um, you know, making sure you can measure and quantify the value. On what frequency do you do that? How do you measure it? What are, what's relatively easy to measure today? And what's what are things that you investors would like to measure but are having trouble doing so? It's a wonderful question. And I hope you ask all of your podcast guests that question so that I can learn from their answers. Impact measurement in this space is really hard. Nature is complicated. Everything's interdependent and interconnected. And it's hard to just draw draw a line around your farm or your forest and measure only what happens inside and call it a day to really understand your effect on a landscape. Um, I think you also have to, you have to be willing to take some calculated risks because a lot of what might be the most impactful about what you do depends on how nature responds to whatever that intervention may be. And we never have have perfect predictability about, about how that might work. In terms of our impact management and measurement approach at CAM, we uh, commit with each asset to set a baseline across the impact pillars, which for us are carbon, biodiversity, water, land use, and community. 
to develop what we call a sustainable development plan for how that whatever the intervention we're making um, will be affected, whether it's land use change, land management change, both if there's particular biodiversity opportunity, it might be more focused on that, whatever the, the opportunity itself presents, but definitely covering those five pillars. Um, and then to report regularly on that. So to answer your question about frequency, um, it really depends on what the intervention is. If it's a biodiversity focus on you know, habitat restoration, for example, it may not make sense to report more often than every couple of years, depending on what it is that specifically we're seeking to, to deliver. We can, of course, report on whether we've implemented the plan, but we may not have outcomes for some time. Carbon is typically easier, certainly scope one and two emissions. You can do quarterly. Um, the real thing that everybody wants to measure and doesn't know how to yet is biodiversity. So trying to come up with you know, the holy grail of a version of metric tons of CO2E for biodiversity, like we have for carbon. Um, I think it's probably a lost cause. I think most folks have acknowledged that, but it makes it very difficult to try to uh, measure and report consistently on biodiversity because it is so hyper-local. So if you look at a market, for example, like biodiversity net gain in England, I believe that there you need to restore the biodiversity impact within a specific ecoregion, um, which I think is maybe a 20 kilometer radius. So it's hyper-local, which it needs to be. But again, that means that it's very difficult to turn into a unit that's tradable. There are markets where um, governments, for example, will put a value on a particular kind of biodiversity. So you know, I'm making this up, but say one koala is worth 10,000 frogs or whatever it may be. That's not something any investor could ever do. That needs to be done by a government on, on behalf of, of uh, the local communities. Um, but again, trying to turn biodiversity into a cutting system, I think, you know, while, while really important, is just really, really challenging. Um, and what we've come up with on the biodiversity side is broadly a framework that allows us to access, assess the extent and the condition of that biodiversity, as well as its significance in the in the global context, that will allow us to report really more of a dashboard of biodiversity impacts over time. And it's a really interesting space to be in because so many of the frameworks and standards that we are likely to want to adhere to are in development. So the, the Science-Based Targets Initiative guidance, for example, for food and land use and agriculture just came out for public consultation the week before last. It's not final. Um, TNFD is a work in progress, right? There's the EU taxonomy rules for agriculture have yet to be written. So there's just so much in flux um, that I think it's a really interesting time to be in the space. And we find that most investors who we talk to are really interested in building frameworks that can adjust and adapt to, to report meaningful information today, um, but also adjust to new standards, new technologies, new information that we may be able to gather over the scope of a longer term project. And, and in thinking about impact, I wonder if you could opine on whether you believe trade-offs exist in nature-based investments between the returns and impact, um, You know, however you choose to define that. Maybe it's improved ecosystem conditions. I'm thinking especially whether you know aren't markets yet to actually monetize all of the all of the impacts that are created. Um, yeah, how you navigate if there are trade-offs. You ask very good questions. We just had a, a team offsite last week where this was a hot topic. I think that so long as you are creative in your structuring um, and that you are 
have a really long-term view, you can generally align financial returns and impact. Um, not perhaps perfectly, um, but I think in general, that is that is the thesis. That's certainly the thesis of climate asset management. Um, and, you know, I'll give you one good example of how I think they're aligned, uh, you know, in, in, in climate resilience, for example. So there was a paper that um, was published recently where a group at the Yale School of the Environment demonstrated or did an analysis that showed that over a 16-year period, there was correlation between increased soil organic matter on farms in Iowa and reduced crop insurance claims because that increased soil organic matter, which reflected directly the way that that land was managed, allowed those farms to retain water better and endure times of water stress such that they didn't need to claim crop insurance. That's a really clear alignment between um, financial objectives and impact objectives. I think there are many more of those. Again, it depends how you define your boundary um, and how long you're in it for. Because of course, the there's a short-term extractive philosophy that absolutely would benefit returns at the expense of impact. But I think if you're in it for the long term, you can generate both. Um, you know, and that maybe gets back to your earlier question about nature-based projects that are investable. Um, you know, there are some that we that I've seen that are that are not at climate asset management, um, where people are deploying agroforestry systems in in tropical environments in situations where they're able to negotiate long-term contracts with premiums for environmental social goals, also premiums for for doing that work on degraded land and restoring it to viability. I think that's a great example of a of a win-win for financial return from the, you know, the the project developer's perspective, having the confidence because of that long-term offtake to make the investments up front to really de- deliver a climate resilient system that delivers a a very high quality, high provenance product alongside ecosystem services. And from the off-taker's perspective, having supply chain resilience and and visibility into that supply chain and the ecosystem services that are being provided in that supply chain. Um, I think that's a great example where both of those align. You know, in that situation, likely if there's a higher cost of product, that's being passed on to the consumer. So that also is something one needs to consider how far down the value chain you go and is there willingness to pay for these improved social and environmental outcomes. Um, but I think that's a good example of a, a creative solution that resulted in a very investable, very impactful project. So given all of your experiences, we'd be so curious to hear what do you think is necessary to you know, catalyze more capital towards natural climate solutions? What do you really think the barriers are? What are the unlocks? For financing this space? I think two things that would really help uh, are, and, and actually these are ways in which the, the United States could contribute in a way, um, are improved scientific understanding and data and ability to actually capture data about how land is managed, as well as, a, as applied science to practical land management solutions. Um, There's surprisingly little guidance out there about how to manage land to meet global nature and climate goals. There's a number of things that we think we need to do, but the specific application on a specific field in a specific scenario is often just too granular to provide specific guidance for. So I think there's a lot that big data and 
and scientific even just synthesis, not even necessarily new research can do uh, to contribute that. And that gives investors the faith that they're investing in something that's going to result in an outcome that is desirable. Um, And that also gives us all collectively data that has integrity that you can build a market around. I think another big piece of it is building these markets that have real integrity and have a track record. Um, It's really hard to be first in any particular scenario. So if you look, for example, at biodiversity net gain in England, like it just started. Um, And so there's not a track record. People are still seeing the opportunities as pretty nascent. Um, I know you've had folks on your podcast who are looking at, at much bigger projects around whether it's improved forest management or uh, avoided deforestation of, of massive areas. Again, I think information can really, really help and better data collecting so that we can get more granular and get down to the tree level and really understand what's happening. But I think we also need to develop markets that uh, large scale investors are, uncomfort- are comfortable are going to stick around for the long term so that when they're, they're underwriting projects, they're comfortable that that's an investment that's going to pay off. Um, and for example, not to suggest that this would ever happen, but you know, someone who wants to invest in a voluntary carbon project might be concerned about how Article 6 might develop and therefore if that voluntary carbon project will have value over 15 years or how will SBTI flag um, indicate that uh, soil carbon offsets should be treated? Should they only be used for insets? Um, all of those types of things could you know, dramatically impact the direction that these markets take. And I think that's one of the reasons why investors, particularly ones with a large amount of capital, are a little bit wary um, of, of, can be a little bit wary of these solutions, even though they offer so much potential. Um, one other idea that is mine, and speaking only from my personal capacity, but I, I really see value in, in bifurcating carbon accounting and expectations between geologic storage and, and storage in, in biomass or, or soil. Um, I think the, the expectation that, that some markets may have that the of the permanence of those mark of, of you know solutions that come from from soil or from trees um, being equivalent to to geologic storage I think it's just not achievable and it shouldn't even be the goal that's not what soil was designed to do it's designed to live and nourish it's not designed to permanently sequester carbon we've taken a massive amount of carbon out of it it must be possible to restore it and it would be good for multiple reasons if we did um, and I think farmers should be paid for that but at the same time, I don't think they should be subject to expectations that that, so, that carbon is then stored for a thousand years. Um, I just don't think that's that's meets the our objectives as um, from a global climate and nature perspective. So to me, if we can move towards a place where that carbon accounting is, and, and value is starting to be bifurcated, and I'm not suggesting that one has more value than the other, I tend to like the idea of carbon that was taken out of geologic storage needs to be compensated by by going back in, for example, and carbon that came out of biomass or soil, the compensation needs to be putting it back into those resources. I tend to like that approach. Um, but however it evolves, I think it's an inappropriate expectation that the permanence be the same. And I think that that expectation can sometimes devalue natural climate solutions because they're seen as insufficiently reliable or insufficiently permanent which is really not the case. I love it. This is a, a topic we have uh, debated amongst ourselves at, at quite length as well. Um, as a final question before before we do the, the lightning round, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more around this, this question that you sort of teased earlier around scale. Is this a problem? Is it a solution? 
you know, obviously one of the things that we've seen is a lot of the, the funds, including CAM that have been raised are are looking for very large investment opportunities in, in natural capital. But a lot of the projects, especially in emerging markets and, and really globally, maybe maybe smaller. Um, and so, yeah, just curious how, how you're thinking about problem solution and, and what was on your mind in, in mentioning that. Well, it comes to mind, actually, because, and maybe this speaks to, to how old I am, and when I was reading work in college, actually, by E.F. Schumacher, um, who was one of the, the person who actually coined the term natural capital, he did it in a book called Small is Beautiful. So that's just, it's a philosophical, I think, question that I pose to myself, um, in that is, is scale always the solution? I think that particularly when you're working uh, within the context of large-scale investment opportunities, there's just this inherent bias that more is always better, more return, more capital deployed. Um, and of course, I'm working for an institutional asset manager precisely because I do believe that we need to scale up these solutions and we can't have them continue to be niche and small. Um, but I think we also need to recognize that there is a legacy. Part of what climate asset management is, is looking to do is to help transition away from perhaps some of the legacy of industrial agriculture um, and the the focus on scale at all costs and the focus on perhaps having one solution for for every every landscape rather than really looking at a landscape and thinking about what it's best positioned to deliver. Um, so those are challenges I think about a fair amount. I think we do need to scale up opportunities and to your point, I'm actually responsible within the natural capital strategy for our our everything else bucket. So everything other than agriculture and timber, precisely because we want to have the opportunity to make investments that may be smaller and maybe a little bit more innovative and maybe in newer markets to help drive those markets forward and create more opportunities for ourselves and future funds and obviously to create more opportunities um, for the market as a whole. Um, so we're trying to do both. Um, but I think there is a fundamental challenge that we see where we're really looking to take uh, solutions that have been proven at, at some commercial scale and help scale them up. And many of perhaps the more innovative and exciting solutions are just not at commercial scale yet. Um, one other thing I think is really important to think about is, is within the agriculture and um, food systems kind of approach, the legacy of industrial agriculture, which is in, in many ways fed the planet at a really affordable cost and enabled a lot of human development. It, it has had some cost in terms of uh, the, the, the impacts on, on nature and also on communities. Um, it, you know, those global supply chains can be incredibly efficient and, and we value them. But I also think there's merit in thinking about how to manage a landscape for local needs, how to reduce the transport of goods around the planet. There are things that sometimes just don't make sense unless you assume that there's zero environmental cost to the to the transport, right? So for example, um, putting frozen scallops on a boat from New Zealand to sell, sell them into the US, right? Does that really make sense? We have scallops in the US, right? Um, there've gotta be some solutions. Sometimes it just seems like common sense and there's usually a reason why markets have evolved the way they have. But I think if we can look for opportunities to disrupt them a bit, and create local solutions closer to local consumption. That's going to improve our climate footprint and uh, hopefully help to benefit broader broader food systems and, and communities as well. 
Thank you so much, Megan. Uh, we covered a lot of ground today, you know, nature being the new climate, how to measure impact, what makes an NBS project bankable, and does one koala equal 10,000 frogs? We, we never got to an answer on that one, but uh, hopefully we will down the line. Um, but our uh, lightning round uh, is the, how we wrap up our podcast. So it's a rapid fire round of questions at the end of every episode. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. To start off, what's your favorite carbon sink? Seaweed. Favorite book? E.F. Schumacher, Small is Beautiful. I'm going to have to go with. If you had a magic wand, what would you change to scale NCS? One thing. Putting a value in biodiversity. I don't know if that's one thing, but I think it's profoundly important. What gives you hope? You guys, I think this, this community that you're building and what you all represent in your respective areas of work gives me such hope. I uh, would never have imagined even five years ago that we could be where we are in the natural capital space and in the natural climate solution space where we're talking about actually doing real, profound, restorative, regenerative work to help address the planetary crisis. I think in some ways with a benefit of perspective, um, we've come a long way and I am really, really hopeful that together we'll find some of the solutions. Absolutely, we're so grateful to be part of this community with you, Megan, and everyone else who's striving to create that better world for, for people and nature. And then finally, top prediction for biggest NCS headline of 2022, what would you say is going to be that biggest NCS 22 headline. An Article 6 compliant carbon contract. Is that too wonky? I love it. I think it's going to be a big development. I think it's going to be a big development. I'll be looking out for that contract for sure. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much, Megan, for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure. We are such big fans of yours and look forward to seeing all that you accomplish and all the great change that you keep bringing into the world. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com to see this episode's show notes, explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.